Welcome to Eurodal University with Jeff Snyder. My name is Emil Kalinowski, but much, much more importantly, we are joined by a very special guest, Anne Stevenson Yang, who is going to tell us a lot about China, but we'll see. Maybe we won't stick to China. Now, Anne first came to my attention all the way back in 2014. Anne, do you remember writing an article for Barron's? And it was that the road ahead for China isn't as as straightforward as it may seem to everyone. And I was dumbstruck because I had been presented one view of China. And your article, for the first time, opened my eyes that maybe there's a completely different worldview. And then I read your book, China Alone, which, believe it or not, Anne, I thought it was the best book I read that year because the difference between where I was when I first started that book to where I was after I finished it was tremendous. An entirely new worldview, a new perspective I had on what was happening in China at the time. So I'm very happy to be finally talking to you on the air. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your company, very importantly, and then we'll dive into the details. Well, thank you, Emil. I'm, uh, you would be one of like three people in the world who have read that book. Um, my children certainly haven't. <laughs> um, you know, I've been an outlier on China since that, that book was, I published it in 2013 and I'm basically saying, ah, China going to go downhill. So nobody agreed with me then. Now everybody's coming around to agree with me, but it sure took a long time. There's not a lot to say about me. I lived in China 25 years, started this company called J Capital Research. We do a weekly that does, that looks at sectors in China. And we also do uh, stock picks, uh, whether they're Chinese or, or American, usually listed in the U.S. So that's what we do. And it's focused on China or not necessarily on China? I know that some of your research for a while, at least, was identifying, dare I say, frauds in public markets in China. Is that right or do I have it wrong? Yeah, that's right. So uh, a lot of our research focuses on finding frauds. They might be Chinese. They might not be Chinese. We do a lot of resources stuff because you know what Mark Twain said about gold mines. It's a gold mine is somebody standing on top of a, a hole in the ground uh, who's a liar. So, you know, we do a lot of resources stuff. We There's, there's an awful lot of bubbles in the market these days, because basically anything where you can declare that two years from now, something fantastic is going to happen, attracts a lot of fraud. So that's crypto mining, it's biotech, it's new energy, all of those areas. And of course, China is a, is a perennial because we have staff in China who can find stuff out. And also because, you know, China just doesn't have the same governance requirements. Now, tell people once more, we're going to do it at the end of the show, but where can people go to find your work? Is it just a website or are you on social media, etc.? I guess just go to the website, which is jcapitalresearch.com. But thanks for asking. Jeff, I'm going to let you ask the question after this one. But Anne, I think we just oh, you go first. rolled right over a big story. You lived in China for 25 years. Tell us when you got there and when you left. I would imagine you saw an, an incredible transformation. And I suppose at what point did you feel as if the transformation became something that was unsustainable or illusory, a mirage of some sort? So, 
I first went in 1985. I was in a dying profession in New York, which is journalism. And it just kind of seemed to me that I could go to a foreign country and learn a foreign language and kind of, you know, that would be better than going to Peoria and writing about the school board. That's what I did. And China at that time was, you know, just beginning to open up. In 1993, I got sort of a proper business job in China. And through the 1990s, you know, it was kind of an exciting time or the early 1990s because everything was changing in China. Everything was growing so fast. But then came Tiananmen. So after the Tiananmen Square massacre in 1989, China started to worry about their grip on the bureaucracy, on financial system, on basically everything, the populace, on power. So you didn't see it right away, but over the following six, seven years, uh, you had the party tighten their control over all sorts of things, whether it was personnel being assigned or the tax collection system, how taxes were assessed and collected, how customs worked, you know, all of those things changed and became much more centralized. So initially, it allowed the central government to deploy just packs of capital. And so you didn't really see that it was a repressive force because it was a force for growth because, you know, China was starting from a very low starting point. The uh, standard of living was very, very low. So throwing capital at stuff really accelerated. And so you still had this sense of, you know, momentum and excitement. But what was happening was, you know, tightening grip. Now, in 2008, I think things changed. In your book, I remember... I think I've got the quote right, but that China reacted as if it was under attack, I believe you wrote. And it seemed that it was at that point where throwing money at the economy stopped to be productive. It seemed as if the debt that was being taken out was now not paying for itself. The economic activity was no longer economic. It was to put people to work, if I have that right. And I suppose, is that okay, why is that wrong? Maybe in the Western world, we think, well, we have to write things off and make a profit, but perhaps perhaps in France or in China, no, it's okay not to make an economic profit. I think Japan might be the case, a similar case, but just to continue to keep people employed, is that sustainable? So there's so many things to say to that. The first thing is, I don't think it has much at all to do with keeping people employed. I don't think China mm. is, is particularly interested in employment. China is, you know, every single government bureaucrat you meet, if you give them a choice between a, a $1 billion investment that will employ 10 people and a $100,000 investment that will employ 100, he's going 1 billion every single time. So the key is that this is a very old, very typical economic model that lots and lots of countries have used and China just got addicted to it. And does it matter? Sure, it matters. Economics are the same whether you're in the US or in China. Um, obviously, you know, economists get a lot of things wrong, but that doesn't mean that you have a fundamentally incomprehensible and different system because you're in a different country, no matter how much Chinese officials would like you to think that. So let me give you an example. When my daughter was 
one, I guess. I remember because I brought her with me and she was just a baby. I went to Western Sichuan, which is where the panda reserves are. And I went to this really remote town where there was a Tibetan minority living and, and they, they had like a one room dark schoolhouse where uh, they didn't have books and, you know, people were cooking over, over fire pits. It was really, really rudimentary. And they built one road from that town down to Chengdu and the whole economy must have doubled. I mean, all of a sudden people could get out of there and sell stuff. So that was amazing. Like, Five years after that, they built a second road. And another few years after that, they built a third road. By the time they built the third road, it had no value, right? It wasn't promoting the economy, but it, what, what it was doing was you're spending money on tar, on labor, on gravel, on whatever it is. And that money is expanding your economy this year. But what it isn't doing is providing lift the economy that's already there so that it will support it in the future. How long can they continue that? Because it seems as if that moment where the fifth suspension bridge has been built across the valley, we've already passed that moment a decade ago or so. So it's still continuing unless I'm misinterpreting what's happening in in China in the economy right now. No, I think that's right, but it, it becomes a very difficult thing to measure and to predict because there are so many interdependencies. But basically what's happened is that, you know, when you build that first road, the return that you get from the, the road itself is always going to be a cost center, right? But the economy around it is lifted by having the road when you build this, and maybe let's say 50%. The second road may be 20% or 10%. The third road maybe not at all. And what that means is that the cost of the road is a drag. So how long can it keep going as long as you can keep rallying the capital to invest in the new road? But the problem is that it has to be more and more and more capital because the return on the capital goes down and down and down and down until you come to a an absurd situation where it's sort of a one-to-one -one proposition. So I invest a billion dollars in order to get a billion dollars worth of, you know, investment and then i have to do two billion next year to make it grow and capital i think is jeff this might be exactly where you want to jump in but the question is where is that capital coming from is it coming from the households the regular households and financial repression and taking those savings and investing it in the sixth suspension bridge or is it from overseas where is this capital coming for these projects that are not great returns are you asking me, asking Jeff? Yeah, uh, both. There you go. I'd oh, like to hear what Jeff ball. says, too. I mean, the, the thing is, it changes over time. So what you saw in the period right after the financial crisis in the U.S. is that you had international economies, but particularly the U.S., engaging in all of this QE and just pushing money into the world. And China, a lot of that money was, was like floating around seeking return. So a lot of it flowed over China's borders because China was offering a higher return because they were saying, you know, whatever, however much capital you give us, we're going to use it to build stuff. So they were giving a return. So trillions of dollars actually flowed into China in that way. There's a lot that you might consider the sort of the fruits of the labor of the Chinese people who've been working for, you know, all these years in order to create exports or whatever that might be 
kind of as an economy works hard to capture that surplus value and put it, you know, it has a non-convertible currency, so it does capture it, right? And it takes that currency and drives it into domestic assets that are that tend to be illiquid. So that's another source, this sort of captured labor value. And obviously printing is another source. We had a Russell Napier on recently. He had written The Asian Financial Crisis. He was there at the time. And he said... Yeah, he's a brilliant he said, guy. I love Russell. The best. The best. And he was writing that when he arrived, there was a sea change in the kind of capital that was coming into those countries at the time. Whereas early on, the late 80s, early 90s, it was foreign direct investment, purchasing businesses, labor, capital, machinery. Whereas by the time he arrived, things had changed and that was portfolio flows that were really driving the money, the, the, the predominant form of money coming in, purchasing stocks and bonds. And he said, well, you know, the problem is should something turn, that money can leave very quickly, whereas foreign direct investment would not. And he brings this up with respect to China today. He says that he has observed, and I think I have too, based on my rudimentary knowledge around the SAFE website, that the inflows have changed into China from FDI to now hot money flows. And he's concerned. He's saying, should that ever, <laughs> all number of reasons why that money should escape if, uh, if something would go wrong. And do you see that as well? Do you see this change as something to be concerned about in China? Or is China different? Yeah, that's a very, very good point. And I would say that you, know, you saw a lot of that money, you saw a ton of that money come in from 2012 until through 2014. And then you had a ton of it, you know, about a trillion dollars of it leave again in 2015. Right now, what's happening is that the Chinese are running quite a tight monetary policy. And of course, the, the rest of the world has been running a pretty loose monetary policy. And that's helped support the renminbi. So with a strong renminbi, you can export more. So a way of, of essentially exporting your savings. What that means is partly, yes, that's going to turn around as the two policies change. Uh, I, I think especially internationally in the U.S., the poli money, monetary policy is going to change a bit. But also that what it means is that you're strangling social spending, right? What the Chinese really, really need to do is put more money into fiscal spending and support the household and less money into capital investment. And that's the opposite of what they're doing. Pettis has been writing about that for a decade, I believe. True. Speaking well, of brilliant guys. Very, and he has said, well, it's just a very politically difficult adjustment to take money from the local governments or the entrenched interests, the people that have benefited from the last 30 years of expansion of running the economy, and so they don't want to part with their billions of dollars to give it to the households. Yeah, but Emil, that's part of what common prosperity is. This new program, this new paradigm that she's going into it is that we've done the investment stuff. We did the uh, financial flows. We did the real estate bubble. We did the Keynesian textbook stuff in 2009 and 2010. And I think, Anne, you chime in here. What was interesting to me was the change in China around 2011, 2012 in particular was the language where the officials were starting to talk about waste. You know, you, you said building that third, fourth, and fifth road 
You know, I'm interested in your take on what the feedback mechanism on the uh, viability of those kinds of projects are, because it seems to me, from my outside perspective, that something did change. Where before 2010, let's say, or 2011, let's say, they didn't really care about measuring the vibe or the, the profitability or the usefulness of every project. It was sort of meet your GDP numbers, meet your GDP numbers. And then, you know, we got into 2012, 13 and 14. And then it was like, OK, we're going to tap the brakes here on this, the way we're doing things. And we're going to start thinking more along the lines of maybe some efficiency. And I'm wondering, you know, what, what is your sense of it? Was there a change in the feedback or accountability or politics even? Yeah, so now you're going to uh, run up against some fundamental cynicism, and I'm sorry about that, but it's been weathered by many, many years of exposure. And what that is about is, you know, every every ruling group, it doesn't matter whether you're in a democratic system or a socialist system or what, but every ruling group depends on on getting resources to its key supporters, right? So in China, the key supporters of the Communist Party have been receiving certain cash flows for quite a long time. As those cash flows start to get more strained, you have to reduce the number of people who are receiving them. That's all 2012 was about when corruption, she took right? over. They corruption, it, right? They called it corruption. They're the hunt for the corrupt billionaires. Well, it's it, it's like, gee, there's only, you know, last year there was $100. This year there's $80. So we better reduce the number of people who have their hands in that pot. So in the past, you know, as a public official, you could have a Ferrari. Well, now you better have a Geely and uh, not make it so obvious. And in the past, you might have a villa. Now you're going to have just, you know, a fairly modest apartment, but you're still going to to have it. You know, just don't make it too obvious. So I think that common prosperity, which came up, you know, last year as a slogan, is essentially the same thing. And if you look at the mechanism of of common prosperity, it's really astonishing how bald the 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 corruption is. It's basically, you know, you go to these private companies and you say, you know, can you make a contribution to common prosperity? Can you make a can you contribute your shares to a charity? And then these companies, whether they be Alibaba or Meituan or Tencent, create new so-called charities. And then those charities cash out the shares like the same day. And where does the money go? I don't know. Like, why couldn't you just raise taxes on those people and, and distribute the money through public systems? Well, somehow that wasn't as convenient. That's all common prosperity is. If you wanted common prosperity, I'll tell you, there's a brilliant, brilliant academic you should interview if you can named Scott Rosell, who wrote a book called uh, Invisible China that came out, I believe, last year. And Invisible China, because Scott has spent his career in rural China. So he looks at the 60% of the population that's rural, and he, he points out a lot of things that are really simple. Like if you gave eyeglasses to school children, you would raise their ability to perform in school by you know X percent. If you gave a daily vitamin to children, you would get rid of the massive amounts of malnutrition. If you know things like that, like there are simple things that China could do to raise its productivity and raise the living standard of its people. But that's not what's interesting to China. What's interesting is, oh, spend a billion dollars on, you know, building villas. Let me just draw that point out to make it plain. Why don't they do that? It seems 
that would be something that a politician, someone like she would want to have the back up and the support of 60% of the population to do those simple things. Surely there's enough money for such simple, small measures. Why don't they do it? Yeah, but you don't forget that it's, I mean, don't forget it's not a democratic system. Nobody cares about 60% of the population. What you care about is the people who are going to keep you in office. So, you know, that's why the Chinese political system, you know, I don't want to make sweet, overly sweeping statements, but let's just say it's reached its shelf life. Is there a sense that they know that, though? I mean, because that's that's kind of one of my main observations, again, from afar, is that there's this concern that the Chinese, as you just said, that their political system, at least the socialism under Chinese characteristics, as it had been under Deng Xiaoping, has kind of run its course, they're sort of groping their way to a, a future paradigm, which for Xi, he wants to make it sound like it's a Maoism part two. But as you said, a lot of it is mostly just illusion too. So is there is there widespread recognition either top or e- even down in the bottom or somewhere in the middle that uh, the regime or the Communist Party as it has as it had existed for decades before then needs to transform. Transform. This isn't a voluntary transition. So the recognition at the very top is that the position of the party is more unstable than it ever was before. You know, don't forget we had a, a 2012 coup attempt yeah. that was, you know, close to close to successful. You know, th- these and we don't really we don't see much of what happens behind the wall. Wasn't it successful, though, in one sense? I mean, she ended up ended up with the prize. <laughs> well, I mean, the guy's up, in jail, so I guess not. Who was doing the coup attempt? And this and- is Bo Lai, who was then the uh, the mayor of Chongqing. Anyway, basically, his 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 deputy actually fled to a U.S. consulate in the next province, and Bo Lai sent a tank as a, as the mayor of a city, <laughs> you know, or of a you know what the central level city sent a tank into a different province to chase him. And uh, there were all sorts of rumors about what was going on. But in the end, Xi Jinping did prevail and Bo Lai and his wife are in jail. And so are a lot of other people. But, you know, it's a it's a very sort of sharp elbowed world back there. Uh, we just don't see a whole lot of it. These one or two outcroppings. So at the very top, there is that recognition. And I think that that's what a lot of the tightening of political control has been about over the last few years. And you continue to see that. And a lot of it is also about tightening access to making sure that private parties don't have access to hard assets. So, you know, it's fine if you have $20 billion in renminbi, but if you have it in dollars, that means you can you, you can take it away to Switzerland or something. And that's not cool. So there's been a lot of focus on keeping companies from doing that. You know, when I was first working in Beijing, there was very lively debate, a lot of magazines by, you know, so-called dissidents, not exactly dissidents, but people who didn't agree with the government. There were salons that were run by alternative economists. And there were all sorts of conferences being held by government think tanks. None of that anymore. It can't hold an alternate opinion to what the central government is saying and be safe. So so that's what the central government has done. As for the regular people and what they feel, I mean, imagine a country in which there are 10 metrics for success, you know, like 
you know, the economy has to do X and inflation has to do Y and COVID has to do Z. And then imagine that country has only Fox News and Onan as its news channels. What are people going to think? They're going to think, oh, it's been great success, right? So I think that's basically what happened. Do they really think that, though? Surely, surely not. Because in the Soviet Union, everyone knew that Pravda was not really Pravda. Yeah, but they've done a very good job of creating barriers to lateral communication in China. So locally, you may be unhappy that somebody stole your money in a P2P platform or that, you know, the local party has taken your land or, you know, something like that. But you don't have access to information that that's also happening next door. So it doesn't become a sort of bridging idea. Now, you said earlier that the party feels that its position is as tenuous as it's ever been. But where is that tension coming from? It's not the people because you just said that they seem satisfied enough. What is the tension? What is the concern the party is focused on? Well, I mean, a couple things. One is just those very bureaucrats on whom the party depends for its support. You know, if you're going to have these anti-corruption campaigns and, you know, take down half of the bureaucracy, people are going to feel very insecure. So so you feel like, you know, gee, you know, I, I could end up in jail or worse. Um, you know, my family's assets could be taken and I hardly know what's going to get me in that situation. So that's, you know, the changeability of policy and the unreliability of law is a, is a big concern. But it's the ability to make and hold on to to money, too. As flawed and problematic as the United States is, you don't find a whole lot of people who think that that their lives will get a whole lot better if only they can emigrate, right? So that's basically everybody in China. This year, we have the 20th Party Congress. And Jeff and I have always talked about the 19th National Party Congress and how important it was that it was... Jeff, you you chime in. What were the key phrases from that point that signaled we were on a new trajectory? Xi liked to use the word rejuvenation over and over again. He also talked about how they were going to change and enshrine the concept of quality growth rather than Mm. quantity growth. You know, all the things I think, Anne, you're alluding to, which is that, you know, when the pie isn't growing as fast as it had been, it's tough to pay off your supporters, right? Again, that's really the the problem is if you've got too many supporters for the lack of economic growth, what are you going to do? All of a sudden, corruption's the biggest problem you have. A lot of their support, former supporters are in jail, and you still have lack of ability to pay off new supporters to keep everything heavy. I think it all ties together, and I think and maybe uh, which whatever your what I'd like to get you what your opinion is on the nineteenth party Congress. That was sort of the coming out party, pun intended for this new idea that China is not going to be what it used to be. And I think that's part of the problem, too, is that for many people in the West, they still haven't got the memo. They still they thought, you know, all along, if you could talk about this, too, back in the 90s, that China was going to become one of our liberal brothers. They were trying to join the international liberal trade order and that if we just traded more with them, if we did more exchanges with them, they would become more like us. And I think you're right that in one sense, the Chinese realized that their vulnerability, economically speaking, after what happened right next door in the Soviet Union in the early 1990s, they said, we need to grow the economy. But at the same time, that created a natural tension with the top heavy structure. 
So as you already alluded to, they cracked down hard, tried to take more control over the political apparatus. But everybody here in the West kept thinking the Chinese were liberalizing. They were reforming in that direction. And I, Emil, we laugh about this all the time, about how when Xi Jinping in 2012 took over, everybody thought he was another reformer, you know, except he was a different kind of reformer. He went in the opposite direction. And that opposite direction, I think, the 19th Party of Congress, getting this back to my long-winded speech here, back to where we were, the 19th Party of Congress was sort of the, by the way, this is official now, China is different. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's true about the 19th Party Congress. I think uh, Xi's ascendance was basically, you know, look, we got, I want to set expectations differently. We're not going to see the same 8% top-line growth anymore. The problem is they don't really have a lot of mechanisms to drive growth otherwise. Um, it's, you mean it's rebalancing of, is an illusion too? <laughs> I mean, we yeah. heard that for years. Rebal- we're rebalancing. We're going to do it differently. We No problem. <laughs> yeah. The unfortunate thing is there are really simple things that they could do to rebalance, but it's really deeply baked into the system that they can't do those things. And so are growth targets just baked into the system. I think your characterization of the way the world interacted with China through the 1990s and early 2000s is a little bit over cynical. I don't think anybody really thought that China was becoming a Jeffersonian democracy, but it was liberalizing. I mean, when I was first there, you were not allowed to leave your job. And your job gave you, you know, to get married. I was 28. My husband was a lot older. He had to get permission from his mother to get married. We had to get permission from the boss of the organization we worked for to get married. You couldn't travel. You couldn't obviously change jobs. You couldn't basically do anything. And whoever it was you worked for, the leader of your work organization could put you in jail for two years with no process. So that was pre-1990s China. After the labor law of 1995 and the reforms and things, things really, really did change a lot. You now have over 300 million people moving around the country for work. That's a big change to the way people live. So I I do think it liberalized. It just, you know, nobody thought it was going to be a democracy. That's kind of my point. They weren't liberalizing because they were moving towards democracy. They were liberalizing because they needed that kind of that lack of the more efficiency and fluidity in the labor force in order to accomplish their economic goals. So, yeah, I, maybe it's overly cynical on my part, but I think it was sort of a let's do this out of necessity so we don't end up repeating the Soviet example. We need to grow rich before we really transition to the the communist ideal. And part of that was loosening some social and political restrictions, especially in the 1990s. But it wasn't you know, I think it was mischaracterized a lot, especially in mainstream sources in the West, as the Chinese are actually legitimately reforming out of, you know, goodness, for lack of a better term. Yeah, no, I think that's accurate. I just don't think that you can really unstring the two things, the economy and, and politics. When you have so many more freedoms economically, then you also have that m- many more freedoms politically. And the fact that, you know, China is now is going to have to sacrifice political, I mean, uh, economic efficiency for political control. It has been doing that for a couple of years. And you see the decline of productivity uh, measures in the economy to about one fifth what they were just two or three years ago. I forget the number. But, you know, that's that's a very real trade off, I think. This year, we are scheduled to have the 20th National Party Congress sometime in October or November. 
And presumably, that means that everything in China will be running smoothly. There won't be any disruptions and everything will go off according to plan. The economy will be humming along because you don't want any bad news heading into that. That's what I'm told. That's what I'm told, Dan. Correct me if I'm wrong. And do you have any sense? I guess the big, the big issue will be whether or not Xi Jinping will, not whether, but how they'll approve his continuous question. term. And what other issues are we, should we be focusing on or should we be concerned about with this year's National Party Congress? I mean, that is the big, the big issue. If, if Xi Jinping were not to get his leader for life designation, that would be a big shock and a very interesting one. I do think that the risks in China this year are to the downside, whether it be political or economic. And, and the risks, the downside risks do bear the threat of contagion internationally. So that's, you know, the, the best possible thing is for everything to stay as it is right now. Not, it's not going to be getting better. Jeff, things aren't too good right now based on our recent readings, right? So we're going to be at a rather low level of economic activity in China then. Yeah. And I think, you know, what Anne just said, that politics and reform and, and economics all go together. They're almost two sides of the same coin. So if we have economic growth that's liberalizing and economic growth that's robust, as we had pre-2008, then obviously China can can pretend to be uh, moving in that direction. But it can, no, I think, you know, it can no longer afford to do so, which was kind of Xi's message in the 19th Party Congress coming out of the, the uh, 18th Party Congress, too some of the noises that were made back then. So, you know, to, to get to your question, Emil, what does the 20th Party Congress look like? I wonder if the flip side is, yeah, Xi Jinping, leader for life. I don't know, Andy, do you think there's any chance that he doesn't get that? Is there any realistic uh, alternative at this point? I mean, I there always is, but I have no idea. It's um, We have so little visibility and so little transparency into that. Sort no, of I was thing. just going to say, you know, that's part of the problem, too, is that they have really cracked down over the last couple of years on basically any sort of political information so that, you know, it's really hard to keep track of anything other than what she wants you to know. Like, you know, we know his supporters, where they are in all these key positions, but as far as any sort of splinter groups or any kind of opposition and opposition's too hard of a term, but any sort of mildly different, differing opinions you just don't see those anymore. Yeah. And there's also been this um, very, very strong code of omerta in, in the Chinese system <laughs> where, you know, nobody, nobody coming out of China ever, ever like spills the beans on what's really going on politically. That's why this book that came out last year by um, Desmond Chum called Red Roulette was so great because he was a pretty significant developer and he's telling all about Wen Jiabao and Wen Jiabao's wife and, you know, what they said at dinner. Nobody does that stuff. Right. So, right. you know, we know less about about Chinese elite politics than we do about Russian and probably about the same as we do about North Korea. Yeah. So I think that's, you know, what my analysis focuses on is if the political situation kind of continues on as it is, that tells us something important about the economic situation, too. If there's no challenge to Xi this fall, then that kind of means that uh, the Chinese are, as I said in 2018, battening down the hatches politically because they know the economy still still hasn't reached a settled state, whatever lower settled state it might be. There's still, as you said, downside risks that are 
not just, you know, a macro cycles downside risk, but real structural stuff. That's really kind of what we've been talking about here, that it was li- literally a regime change. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. And we've been asking you questions about China, but maybe they're the wrong questions. Your clients <laughs> have investments or business or s- some important to-do items in China. They're asking you questions. Is there anything that they're asking you that's particularly interesting that you wanted to raise with our audience right now that we haven't covered? Not really. I mean, I just feel more and more separate from the place. You know, I haven't been able to go back for over two years now because of COVID. And and with the political situation as it is, I think, you know, I'm wondering whether I'm ever going to go back. There are fewer foreigners in China now than in Luxembourg. And that's <laughs> not, you know, that's not by mistake. And they can't travel around very much. And even even Chinese people who are there can't travel around very easily. So it's very hard to get information out of China. And that's a shame and it's disappointing. Um, but I also think by design, design, right? I mean, that's, yeah, that's it's, by, the, it's very convenient. You know, yeah, you can yeah. tell the story you want to tell. I think the big question that's on everybody's minds is when is China, when or if is it going to open up and release these travel restrictions? So they're building these quarantine facilities all over the country and they have a target of 100 quarantine rooms per positive test, which at the moment would be about 10 million rooms, right? <laughs> I haven't heard anything so, about that. What's that all about? I don't understand. I mean, they're not the only country building quarantine facilities, but it does seem to me kind of a peculiar you know, airlock that China is building between itself and the world. So they're building all of these quarantine rooms so that they can have they have three types. One is for, for incoming travelers from overseas, and those are mostly hotels that uh, cities have contracts with. And the second is people who are coming from so-called high-risk areas back to another area. So it might be international travelers coming home, or it might be people, people coming from, you know, Suifen and Heilongjiang to another place. And the third is, I, I actually forgot. <laughs> I forgot what the third I category is. But anyway, yeah. yeah. They're they're requiring that, um, and some cities have built these like really, really fast. Like they've sent in a brigade and built, like Xi'an built 60,000 quarantine rooms in like two weeks. Tianjin did the same thing because Tianjin had an outbreak, which they blamed on the post, right? That uh, somebody had sent a letter with COVID (laughs) from overseas. Um, So it kind of feel, and you, you know, Local government, there are standards, of course, for these things, but basically local governments have the right to detain you and put you in one of these facilities, which is way out in the suburbs. And, you know, probably 90% of the time it's really for for COVID and you'll be let go in seven days or 14 days. But I bet there's that other 10% of the time when it's not. That's right. You know, my cynicism radar is going up here. I was wondering, you know, how much of it is actually COVID and how much of it is potentially something else, you know, oh, we're we're using COVID as an excuse to do other things like, you know, not not necessarily politically crackdown. In my mind, it's the, the zero COVID policy is sort of a don't blame us for the economy being bad. It was this pandemic that hit us. And, and you know, there's any number of ways that they can control the narrative. I mean, Last year, they made it illegal, essentially, to criticize the economy, which is, to me, my my natural cynicism connects all of these things together. Yeah, for sure. And it's kind of, you know, when you make rules in a country that size and you you create bureaucracies, the bureaucracies find a way to have a role. 
whether they had that role to begin with or not. You know, I noticed this in, in SARS time when I'd bicycle around my neighborhood and all of a sudden these village committees appeared and my neighborhood's part of Beijing, right? But all of a sudden there are these so-called village committees with old people wearing red armbands that have put um, blockades in front of streets and you're not allowed to go down that street anymore. So where were those village committees last month? I don't know but they still somehow exist and they can block people from traveling in there down this street. So for me, that's kind of concerning. And that's happening with COVID all the time. You yeah. know what? It's yeah. the county level that builds these rooms and enforces the quarantine. So, you know, suppose, suppose you're really, really mad at your neighbor because he, I don't know, did what? And you have the right to, to quarantine. You're going to quarantine that person, you know? Everyone expects China to further integrate with the world. That's what globalization was all about. But that's not necessarily what we've seen throughout Chinese history. And one of the most striking parts of your book was, if I remember correctly, was the conclusion, the possibility, the realm of possibility that China might wall itself off from the rest of the world. Now, you wrote that a long time ago, but just what you're describing right now about building this bubble containment unit with the rest of the world reminded me of that. What do you think of your thesis from long ago? A, did I remember it correctly? B, is it a possibility that one day maybe China will decide that it's had enough of the interaction with the rest of the world and it'll just focus on itself? Yeah, well, that's always been the preferred strategy of, of China, right? They had foreign concessions in their certain coastal cities. They had SEZs, which initially you know, cities like Shenzhen, people, regular people weren't allowed to go into. You could show a passport and get in, or you could show a work card that showed that you were employed, but it wasn't just open to regular, regular people. You know, they've always in Hong Kong, you know, what's the, what's the role of Hong Kong? It's always in having a different legal system, a different tariff structure, and yet being, you know, in walking distance to, to the mainland. That's what the Chinese have always preferred. So this separation is kind of comes naturally, I think, I think to the Chinese. And, you know, I've always thought of the Chinese system has really not changed very much through all these years of, of coupling with the world. They have the same, you know, the PBOC, the MOFCOM, you know, so on and so forth, the Ministry of Commerce, their internal institutions are really very much unchanged over the last 40 years. And yet they've coupled with uh, international institutions. I think of it as the coupling on a train where you can kind of easily join or you can detach, but you don't integrate. Jeff, I am out of questions. How about you? Do you have any? No, I think that, you know, that what you're just saying is it strikes a lot of resonance because, I mean, it's story. I mean, ch the Chinese culture is absolutely incredibly long and deep, and it's a remarkable how they maintain this kind of homogeneity through all these different systems. And it, you're right. And it's, it always seems to be they prioritize inward looking, whether it be political systems or economic structures and sort of this, the last 30 or that 30 year period between 1990, 1992, whatever it was, and 2008, 2012, that, you know, that 20 year period there where they sort of, you know, didn't really let go of, of that inward structure, but at least embraced the uh, potential for globalization as it related to what China could gain from it. And now they're sort of going back to type, they're reverting to the mean, sort of, so to speak. And I think that's, 
part of what Xi Jinping's message is, is that, okay, we did this, we needed to do it. We've reached our plateau. Everything's great now. We're moving on. We're, we're not moving on. We're moving backward by calling it moving forward toward more historical Chinese characteristics. Yeah, no, I think that's that's exactly right. You know, you would see these government institutions like send study groups to learn about how the U.S. handles this or Singapore handles that. And then they would make exactly, you know, that thing, but in a little like bubble that was attached to the ministry. So, for example, the U.S. has an anti-dumping regime. So they would make an anti-dumping regime and a whole team of people who would deal with anti-dumping. And every time the U.S. had an anti-dumping suit against China, and I'm not saying anything positive about the U.S.'s anti-dumping, but it's just an example, then China would come up with, you know, a tit-for-tat anti-dumping thing. The same thing with the standards group in, in WTO. It was never a matter of really synthesizing yeah. and adopting yeah. these things. It's kind of like, you know, when your Chinese friends go abroad, they always pack their suitcase, or they used to, I don't know whether they still do. They pack their suitcases with instant noodles and, you know, all these all these things from China because there's this fear about, you know, the outside world. You have to go out there as almost as if you're in a spacesuit, you know, like don't get too too contaminated by the by the foreign world and get back home as soon as you can. That's the attitude of the Chinese well, you know, institutions. Well, you know, given their history, can you blame them sometimes? I mean, you know, the outside world oh, yeah, has right. not been very kind to most of Chinese, China's history, especially in the, you know, the modern age. Hey, the outside world is filled with grief. It's yeah. like, yeah, it's yeah. pretty, pretty bad lately. And I'm going to ask you to tell us once again about your company, where people can find them. But before we do, was there anything interesting, important, that we didn't cover anything that we just completely spaced on that you want to let us know about that you're interested in right now. I mean, there's a ton of stuff I'm interested in, but nothing really, really jumps out. It seems pretty broad ranging. All right. And we'll tell us again, where can people reach you? What can they learn from J Capital Research? I don't know what they can learn from J Capital Research. They can reach me always. You know, I'm, I'm like Ms. Open Book. You know, you, I could be having like open heart surgery, and I would still respond to your email. So my email is anne at jcapitalresearch.com. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Appreciate it. Yes, thank you, Anne. We really appreciate your time. Well, appreciate thank you it. for thank having you. me.